one thing we've done really well is to ensure that, you know, we, by not building a UI, we create opportunity for distributors. Right. My philosophy is like, if you have hundred problems to solve 99 of them and give one for smart people to go solve it. Because when it's, once you give smart people opportunity, they will go build amazing things. And that's how Kubernetes work. Yeah. So the whole notion of like simplicity versus complexity, you really have to, you have to think through. It's not simplicity is the answer all the time. It's about, I would say like, you know, perceived value. Like what is the value you're providing? And if you create enough opportunity, create great value and create opportunities for smart people to capture value and you've got to create an amazing system. to Mission D5 with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission D5 and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. All right. I'm excited today because we've been talking about this project quite a bit on our daily show. So I'm excited to have with us today, Greg Osori, the founder of Akash and the CEO of Overclock Labs to kind of talk to us about the really cool and interesting things that they're doing at Akash. But first of all, Greg, if you could quickly tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started in programming back when I got started in tech and tell us kind of about your journey into to crypto and then into Akash and what you guys are doing. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Super excited to be here. So my background, I've been a programmer for a little over 25 years, 26 years or something. And I would say like last 12, 13 years or so, I've been primarily focused on building developer tools. So I'm a kind of developer that builds tools for other developers to build. Nice. I'm a developer's developer. I like it. That passion for developers really began about, you know, 20, I would say 2011, when I founded AngelHack. AngelHack became the largest hackathon in the world. Nice. About 50 cities and about 150,000 developers coming to our ecosystem. Awesome. And you know, I love hackathons. We put hackathons on a map. Like, it was so large that every time we did one, TechCrunch used to write about that. So the nice. Hackathon TechCrunch wrote about. It was very large, and I, you know, love developers. Like, that's, I made that my mission to help developers, and Akash is uh, just one step in, in that direction. But really... You know, several companies launched there. A popular one would be Firebase launched. Like sure. So there are a lot of good stories that came out of Angel Hack. But before that, I began programming and I grew up in India. I grew up on a farm in India, actually. Wow. <laughs> Without a computer. And I learned <laughs> how to code in 94 using books and really cool people around me teaching me, you know, validating. So yeah, I read my code in paper and in paper and plan. Wow. And I would go validate that. Next day in a computer lab, you would get like some time to use a computer. So I would carry a bunch of batteries that would, that would, I would store my code so I can reference them. This was no GitHub, there's no internet, right? This is like free internet, free, free Windows, in fact, right? Free GUI 
it was a thing. I remember when Gui came, it was like a big deal. Yeah. Remember. Wait, uh, that's an exceptional way to learn, actually, if I think about it, right? I mean, I've talked about in the past how, you know, people talk about how fantastic Russian developers are and people, I've talked to people before that said that the, one of the reasons Russian developers do so well is the equipment they had back in the day when I was, you know, starting off in tech was so behind the times, not, I'm sure it's not that case now, that they had to learn how to optimize their code. But I can really imagine that if you're writing it down by hand the night before, you're really thinking about whether or not this is going to work tomorrow. <laughs> and Absolutely. so... I mean, you don't I, want to lose 24 hours of finding out. That's amazing. I think I I like fundamentals, right? I like found like fundamental stuff. Anything I do, like I'm a photographer, I, nice. I, I take, but I use an analog camera from '94 or like wow, like when I do like medium format, I use a Hasselblad 500 from '90 from '65. Wow, uh, wow! So I like like the pure purity of you know craftsmanship. And there is a sense of expertise that's very deep you gain when you go lower level, right? So, yeah. I mean, I can still write assembly. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, sometimes break it down to like a DFS or a DevPerch search algorithm and assembly because it's fun. We really think about what memory and what, you know, the latency between memory and CPU and yada, yada, yada. You really go get it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And everything is optimized at that point. Uh, right. I just, I wonder if that kind of write it down first would be an interesting way to teach programmers getting started. Anyway, just. I like to learn things from basics. Like when I started photography, like basics, camera, you know, like film and lens, yeah. right? Like let's start from there. Let's understand physics. I like physics and I like, even today when I do a lot of math, I use, like, I like integrals and calculus because it's just so pure to, to the foundations without any abstractions. But anyway, that's just... That's a great backstory for starting programming, man. That's a, that's a first for me. Then, I know, moved to the States and, you know, I, several years later, I, you know, discovered a big pattern in U.S. is U.S. has a culture of isolation, right? So a lot of folks don't have a great collaborative culture, at least from my observation. Right. Like how I grew up in India where... Yes, you, have, you would have your books and your code and whatnot, but ultimately it's the people around you that correct you, teach you, guide you, mentor you on the way that made me who I am. So I felt like the level of collaboration was missing and that led me to found Angel Hack. And Angel Hack, you know, was an incredible way of bringing people together. This is Web 2. This is, and when Web 2 is just booming, in, it was at 2011 in San Francisco. It was a different time in San Francisco. It was a Post, uh, you know, 28, 2008, 2009 downfall and San Francisco is just coming back and really pure play uh, Web2 was brewing. So it was part of that revolution and founded a company and found this a new technology stack called Linux Containers. Uh, this is in 2013. And a company called Docker. Docker, it was a wrapper on containers and I found, I got super excited because it was made containers super easy to use, but it lacked fault tolerance. Mm -hmm. So I started working on a, another project I found called Kubernetes, maybe 14. So, you know, the founder, you know, it was really fascinating. It was a Google project, and I was working on a different Google scheduler called Omega Scheduler to make fault-tolerant containers. And I found this project, I fell in love with it, and started doing, you know, work around contributions to this incredible project. And then I founded a company called Overclock Labs to take Kubernetes to market. Nice. Any, before anyone heard of what Kubernetes. For context, Kubernetes today is used by 80% of the cloud. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started making a lot of contributions. You know, invited to speak at the first conference of Kubernetes. I, you know, I, I helped put together what a multi-cloud Kubernetes could look like. We have multiple demos of me doing it online somewhere on YouTube, I suppose. You know, and as we were deploying this, you know, Kubernetes and Docker, when you combine them together, enabled a very incredible workflow to deploy applications that solve for parity. Because the big right. challenge, you know, happened to be for cloud deployments is, or deployments in general, was what you have in your local system doesn't really match what you have on your remote system, right? So sure. When there's like this package missing, that package missing, yada, yada, yada. The containers, you could package all the dependencies and push them together. And with Kubernetes, it has more tolerance orchestration, so you have a fully correction grade system. So if you're still sucked in development. Developer experience, right? It was good enough for developers like us to be able to like take this and make something good out of it, right? Right. So as we were deploying the solution, we discovered, I mean, this was going after users that want high performance, like the way to get high performance is to go low latency with edge computing or near edge computing, basically going to where your users are. And we have this amazing like multi-cloud, almost peer-to-peer edge node working together. And we discovered most compute that we were deploying to was unused. Huh. So an opportunity because, you know, in data centers, you, when you have compute, you're planning for peak, right? Like, it right. takes a month to put a box in a data center. So you want, like, you always want to address peak capacity. So if you're someone like Intuit or Walmart, like Intuit, for example, is at peak maybe like one day or one week of the year during, you know, tax filing season. Sure. Most of the year, they're not people are not finding taxes. They're just there, but you still need the capacity to address the one 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 week. Right. So that's a common pattern you see quite a lot, especially with retail. And you have like Walmart's world where you have like shopping seasons that are hyper busy and most of the time, you know. And there's another company called Amazon which had a similar problem. It's they created cloud computing. You need part of that. So right. Yeah. So I saw that opportunity that hey, then a lot of companies that have underutilized capacity in their data centers sitting idle. Uh, and, you know, then the idea to create a marketplace came about. And we're designing this marketplace. Uh, we wanted to keep it open, or an open source, like as open source people we are. Right. Or my work, a lot of my work today is used by Kubernetes and like Kubernetes Helm and HashiCorp Nomad and WFC. And a lot of my open source work is still very actively used by a lot of these projects. Sure. And uh, so, I mean, you know, we're a huge, my co-founder and I, we both are extremely pro-open source. So we want to build an open source marketplace. Uh, we already had a peer-to-peer model with our edge computing working in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And then we finalized, and the model was something like a BitTorrent style replication or a Git style integrity check or Merkle tree integrity check. So we put Merkle tree and BitTorrent together, you end up with a blockchain. Right. That's how we accidentally ended up on a blockchain. That's amazing. Like knowing that we were doing a blockchain. And then we formalized the constructs around blockchain consensus. And, and there was this project called Tenure that sure. went on our radar in 2018. It was a framework to build layer ones. And we initially started out with Ethereum as a prototype and CryptoKitties launched and that crashed Ethereum. And we were like, okay, this is not suitable to build a high-performance infrastructure network. We wanted to go build a layer one. And Tendermint was a great library. And we adopted that in 2018. I had fair shares of problems and then Tendermint eventually became Cosmos, uh-huh. uh, and we were the first project in Cosmos with the first IBC chain. The first IBC transaction, means inter-blockchain tra- transaction, happened between Akash and Cosmos Hub. And so, you know, we were first to do a lot of these things right, from, in terms of like 
Cosmos stack in terms of like Kubernetes stack and like, and long story short, here we are. We That's are amazing. Kubernetes GPU market too. We're the first ones to actually implement because we're running a lot of the upstream code ourselves, right? Like the support is not existing. Right? Sure. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, I love the path, right? I mean, obviously it makes complete sense for where you are and you, I, the progression of that is really fascinating. So tell us, t tell folks that are listening that have no idea what Akash is or what it provides to the world. Tell us kind of what that is and, and what it, what you guys envision it becoming, but what it is today, how it's useful. The simplest way to describe Akash is essentially a open market to trade cloud-grade computer resources. So for folks that have, you know, data centers and, you know, more often than not have unused capacity in those data centers can trade that unused capacity for Akash credits, which can be used to further scale their capacity. Or folks without data centers looking for lower cost, high quality compute can come to this marketplace and get that get that compute. The best analogy to describe Akash is something like Airbnb versus Hilton. Huh. So Hilton is, you know, can say you can compare Hilton and Amazon together. Hilton is a place where you can go get standard surveys and standard pricing and consistency for a business travel, great, right? But you go to Airbnb if you want variety. Right. right. Both in terms of price performance, in terms of like quality of compute. So Akash is like Airbnb, whereas Amazon is like Hilton. That's how you really look at. Are they competing with each other sometimes, but are they cooperating with each other? Yeah, I think more often than not, because there's no like rule saying that if you're, if you go to Hilton, you can't do Airbnb. It's both the options depending on what I'm doing. So Akash gives an alternative market. It is the largest market. We have about 50 providers right now, free incentives. And, and, and it's growing very quickly. And with incentives, we expect at least a thousand provider footprint in the next 12 months. Amazing. Uh, and, and it will be the most distributed network. I think it's from a regional distribution. Akash is a lot more distributed than Amazon's of the world. But of course, the scale is not yet, you know, not yet anywhere close to Amazon. Right. But the way we're trending, it's, it's only a matter of time. So in terms of the struct, well, first of all, the use case is people that need compute and people that have excess compute. And so it's really the processing capabilities of servers that are sitting idle at times, whatever your example earlier of QuickBooks having excess capacity, you know, year round until tax day, whatever, or TurboTax, whatever it was. Uh, the use cases for, so the compute power is accessed directly. How does it work in kind of the context of blockchain, the network, the distribution of this? And how does, if I was coming to buy compute power, how would I go about doing that? And what would it mean to me in terms of say pricing, performance, those kinds of things? Sure. So the tenants are the ones that, you know, that, that lease compute power, right? So, you know, and providers are the ones that provide mm -hmm. compute power. So providers install a cache in their, you know, Kubernetes clusters that enables them to participate in the market. The process really begins with tenants describing what they want in terms of resources, in terms of memory, CPU, bandwidth, disk, now GPUs very soon, and, you know, IP addresses and a whole lot of other features in terms of like, you know, uniqueness. It's like a cloud system, right? So you describe right. for me in this SDL file, if you're technical, it's very similar to Docker Compose file. And more importantly, you say how much you're willing to pay price. You set the price as a user. Okay. Every topology has set the price. You can set any price you want. And that goes as an order on the blockchain. And the blockchain is essentially an order book. Okay. And providers bid on the order, right? And 
Now the tenant gets to choose which provider they want to go with. Usually the provider that matches all the attributes and matches a, and offers a lowest price. Really. Sure. But no guarantee. There's no matching agent. There's only bidding agents, no matching it. Right, so right. right. Still the tenant. So you get to choose who you want to deploy on. And then once that happens, Akash Network goes away. There's a peer-to-peer -peer relationship that's established between the provider and the tenant. Akash Network is only used to coordinate and settle. So all wow. the okay. Akash Network. But the deployments are peer-to-peer. -peer. So you don't have, you have a privacy now, right? Between your tenant and your provider because now you have the sensitive data that gets transmission. But blockchain becomes a coordination. And blockchain becomes, and that's pretty much it. And when the lease ends, you know, of course, the order is closed on the blockchain and that, you know, sets the record. And then, you know, it disappears for the most part. So it's a very interesting model between like on-chain coordination with off-chain Right. And so the users who need the compute power really are probably looking for a better deal, I would assume, than if they went straight to an AWS. More but, value. Okay. I mean, like some of them come to us use a high-performance NVMe storage. Like, it's quite a lot of Chia miners use Akash, right? I think a good portion of Chia actually runs in Akash. Wow. All of them are coming because they want high-performance NVMe storage. Like, okay. Not can provide. Like, just like Airbnb, right? If you want, like, a 10-bedroom, like, villa in southern France, you cannot get that on Hilton Vacations. You know? Right, right. Absolutely. So, no, that makes sense. I love yeah, that. Analogy. Right, in marketplace, right? Yeah, there's yeah. super low-cost options on Akash. That's, like, 85% like cheaper than Amazon. And they're like super high-end options that are actually maybe two to three times more than Amazon. So it's a very wide marketplace. That's really fascinating. And then this peer-to-peer -peer connection is really just normal network tunneling yeah. connectivity between that they would do in any other circumstance, right? With, with overlay network, with all security and like all that good stuff. But yes, fundamentally, it's just a direct connection. And you guys, and your cost just gets out of the way at that point. Yeah. I mean, you're still awesome. using a card stack. The blockchain gets out of the way. I mean, you still have... right. Right. software that you use, of course. Yeah. But this isn't this isn't like you know file storage on chain or anything like that or compute on chain. This is we're doing we're using the chain for all of the order processing, the matching, and getting everybody together. But then we're it would be, that's what I always wonder about things like this. And I actually had in the back of my head about Akash. I was like, well, how are you providing? How the hell do you provide like when you guys launch GPU? How does that happen on chain? Right? I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. So now it makes complete sense. So that's great. I mean, general purpose compute can't be on chain. It's just, it yeah. no, there's no research, nothing that indicates the GP compute computation is on chain. Anyone that's on chain GP computations is complete liar. Yeah, I can't imagine how that could be. That's why I was, I, it's just because I didn't take a deep enough dive. And then in terms of our, I noticed, you know, a number of applications that are deployed by developers on the Akash network. And it seems like there's like this wide variety of things happening there. Can you kind of explain, well, obviously you have a great background in recruiting developers to do things, but can you kind of explain what's, what the ecosystem, how that ecosystem works, what developers are creating and what value they bring to what you guys are offering? So Akash network user experience is non-custodial and very developer focused. Like it's so developer focused. We haven't built a web UI. But they're like eight different clients for Akash, right? Nice. All the way from like CloudMoss is the most popular one. Fleek, I don't know if you, you know, this company Fleek, which is popular in Web3, like the Web3 Versal, and you know, they're building a front end for Akash, right? Okay. So you have like a diverse set of front ends. Akash is API only product. So that limits as to who really uses. And it's very, you know, Web3 experience for now. And so 
Proportionally, there's a lot more Web3 companies that are protocols that use Akash. I think supposedly about 30% of Cosmos actually runs on Akash now. Wow. So a lot wow. of are like Cosmos and Chia and whatnot. Wow. And like Osmosis runs the front end on Akash. Mars Protocol, which is released today, which is making a lot of waves, reused on Akash the front end. Juno Network runs a lot of Stargaze Network runs on Akash. I mean, a lot of like Cosmos projects on Akash. Akash being the first Cosmos chain and having that sort of like that, that ecosystem effect, right? Um, right. Now we're seeing quite a lot of AI applications, right? I mean, a lot, I mean, even though we're not, we're GPUs are like a few months away, people are just so excited about it. Doing integration and waiting for GPUs to get turned on, right? So we anticipate AI is going to be a lot more prominent, like deployments for Akash, just from cost factor, right? I mean, if you want, I don't know how familiar are you with like creating an, an inference for AI, especially with large, I mean, with LMs, large language models. It, it, they proportionally, they're really good at running on high-end GPUs like A100s or media A100s, right? really hard to buy. On Amazon, they cost about $4 per hour. On a car, it costs about a dollar an hour. So it's very, wow. very attractive, right? Yeah. And these are expensive boxes. So, I mean, there's obvious interest for AI. That's amazing. Well, look, I think you, know, you tweeted about that the other day that you all were really going hard after the AI market. And obviously we all know the level of hype we're experiencing around AI, but I think we're at that, like we're at, you know, whatever you want to call it, tipping point or whatever, that this is a dramatic sea change, which puts you all in a really interesting place for pulling off access to GPU resources as and everyone and their dog wants it. And we've been talking about GPUs for three years, right? It's not something that we came up overnight. Right, right. Oh, wait, look, yeah. everybody's popular. Let's do it. Like yeah. everybody, like people look at it like, oh, look, a is doing AI because everybody's doing AI. Like, I mean, have you seen our GitHubs? Have you seen our social? Have you seen our GitHubs? Have three years? Now, finally, overnight success seems to overnight, right? It's always that way. Yeah. Always that way. Like, You're the bandwagon group. There you go. Yeah, it's always like that. It's amazing. Like, yeah, forget all the years of nights and weekends of working on the stuff or dragging myself on like 13 hours of hackathons and AI hackathons and like all that stuff, right? Anyway. Yeah, it's crazy. Developers that are building apps in the space, their job, what they're trying to do is create applications for helping access the marketplace? Or are they building applications in specific verticals that are targeting specific, you know, whether it's GPU for AI or GPU for something else or CPU for something else? What kinds of things, what is their goal when they're building an application to be kind of the connector and provide the interface that helps people find what they're looking for? Is that the primary concept behind it? Yeah, I mean, it's heavy verticalization. Because right. a guy being general purpose is general purpose. That means it's not going to be it's going to be good at everything, not great at one thing, right? So right. That's why you need verticalization in order for adoption. I mean, that's really the only way. So we have a few. Fleek is obviously very clear Web3 vertical. They're really good like from a user experience standpoint. And Akash is really good from a backend and capability standpoint and stability standpoint, right? So, sorry, let's speak slower. <laughs> no, you're fine. So Fleek is obviously verticalizing for Web3. Speron is like, Verticalizing for Polygon, CloudMoss is more Cosmos. We have another Praetor, I believe they're doing provider side of things. They have a whole business model around provider onboarding and management for providers for Akash. We have two big, big announcements that we're making. Those are mainstream, like Web2 folks. Oh, wow. Guys, I mean, stick to NDAs, but within like two months, you probably see that big integrations. Okay. But one thing we've done really well is to ensure that 
you know, we, by not building a UI, we create opportunity for distributors. Because if you have, my philosophy is like, if you have 100 problems to solve 99 of them and give one for smart people to go solve it. Because when it's, once you give smart people opportunity, they will go build amazing things. And that's how Kubernetes work. Yeah. So the whole notion of like simplicity versus complexity, you really have to, you have to think through. It's not simplicity is the answer all the time. It's about, I would say like, you know, perceived value. Like what is the value you're providing? Right. And if you create enough opportunity, create great value and create opportunities for smart people to capture the value. And you've got to create an amazing system. Well, and it's an ideal system, right? I mean, first of all, you all have spent, you and your partner have spent your careers attracting and recruiting and getting developers to do things, right? So you already know that market. You know what appeals to them. You are a developer's developer. And so it makes sense for you to focus on that fundamental infrastructure, those fundamental pieces that they need to build a business around. And it's got to be really compelling to these developers that are signing up that have a vertical that they want to go after because that's their world. That's what they yeah. know. Uh, to have all of that dealt with by you and to be able to build a business layer on top of that is fantastic. How are they, we didn't get into kind of the model for compute providers. I'm assuming there's some kind of token model that they get paid via the system that way, yeah. thus pushing up the value of Akash and, and in the market. The people who are building, are they building in you know, subscription models, are they building in, are they getting a piece of the revenue that's generated for Akash in general? How does that work? So the Akash blockchain is governed by the Akash token. And okay. Akash token is the native token. AKG token is a native token for Akash network. It is, it, but its primary goal is to secure the Akash network, Akash being layer one. Right. So state consensus mandates a token. So it secures the Akash network. And it is a primary you know, value exchange. Now, it, so, and there is a, since the value of AKT is proportional to the security of a cash network, it's inherent to the protocol that the value grows organically and gradually with the demand. Sure. So there's a value capture mechanism for the token itself. There is a small service fee for the token that sure. goes to security budgets or incentive budgets that's used to maintain a network, essentially. Right? It's all on-chain, it's all... You know, value captures on chain. So as an AKT holder, you know, you, when you stake, you get a portion of from there. And, and obviously now AKT as is a volatile currency. So it's not, it's great for like short run jobs, but not so good for like, like long running jobs. Right. Right. So there are new proposals now to incorporate stable currency with higher taxes, essentially. Okay. So stable currency, but you pay a tax for AKT because without the tax, AKT can secure. Right. Yeah, you because know, that gives security to the blockchain. Without security, there's no blockchain. So there's all like very circular dependency on, on, on the value of the token and the growth of Akash network. So the verticalization is happening, have different few different models. I think CloudMoss is doing a subscription model. Okay. And some of them are doing like pay per usage model. And it really varies. And you know, they the these companies can capture value through to you know holding UKT and you know staking UKT and you know, but I think they're also like charging an additional premium on top of that. Sure. Makes sense. So it's degree. So it's very great. There's a lot of variety there. A lot of variety, right? Oh. And yeah, the token is inherently, I think we've done quite a lot now with the recent proposal. We're innovating quite a lot on, on what it means for token security and what it means to optimize the security budget and optimize the incentive budget. Right. So okay. we're exploring quite a lot. I mean, we have incredible people helping us with this. David Shea, I don't know if you know him, but he's a Stanford professor. He's, he helped Mike, he helped 
you know, Ethereum moved from proof of stake, proof of work, proof of stake. He saw like two of the critical problems in Beacon Chain when it comes to security consensus. So he's a security expert, blockchain security expert. He had an interesting proposal of using Bitcoin to secure a cash. So, so use some of the, and of course the trade-off is latency, right? Bitcoin is very slow. But sure. if you can actually really think about it, like, okay, can you offload some of the security to Bitcoin? And, you know, can you have what you call selective security instead of having a homogenous secure layer? Because so far we don't think of blockchains. When you look at security, assume a homogenous layer, just like we were doing for like Ethereum gas fees, right? Right. Like if you're moving a million dollars versus moving a $10 on the chain, you should have different security budgets, right? Like you're not, you don't have to pay the same amount of money for moving $10 versus moving $100, right? Sure. Probably moving a million dollars. So... Like you don't, that doesn't, you don't see that real world. Why do we assume everything has to have the same level of security blockchain? So we're, we're working on a lot of the security budget optimization so that we can optimize for more incentives so that we can actually, you know, understand how much, you know, tax should be paid and captured and whatnot. So there's a lot of, lot of innovation happening with, you just with like share security versus sovereign security and the Cosmos ecosystem that Akash is leading the way. That's awesome. Yeah, well, that'll trickle out through all the other folks who are building layer ones through Cosmos as well, right? I mean, at least the experiment will be seen. Mesh security. What's that? We're also helping build the mesh security, which is like a new shared security model nice. that's been proposed in the Cosmos ecosystem. Cosmos, did, Cosmos, again, is like wonderful and diverse, and you have so many different like models that all came up organically on a complete and healthy way. And that's what makes it beautiful because there's no centralized company with Cosmos that coordinates everything. Right. It's a more decentralized set of like projects that come together and create a same coin base and like, you know, carefully value value the opportunity and pick the winners that way. It's incredible. Is, that's so, it sounds like an amazing ecosystem to work in. Is Akash, I would assume that Akash is one of the largest Cosmos ecosystem players now, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, yeah, I mean, I believe like rank, I mean, I think market cap wise, I think it's being ranked at some sub 300. It's a, it's a little, little about a Juno network in terms of market cap and below osmosis. And, I mean, our secret network, I would say. Okay. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, but you guys, I mean, you guys, theoretically, it sounds like from the, on the provider side and the developer ecosystem side, and then the end customer side. You're not even like at full launch here. It sounds like you have a, you're expecting your expectation is significant more growth on all aspects of the marketplace. Absolutely. So one thing we did really well, which I'm very proud of, which is a hard way to do it, but we did a good job at it, is not add incentive. Okay. Like you have pure value exchange. So we have about 50 providers wow. without incentives. That must so have been so tempting. Fact, yes. It's <laughs> Oh, a really hard decision. I think we did a good job. And our thesis was you got to add incentives post-product market fit, not pre-market market fit, or else you'll end up in trouble. Yeah. Right? Because you see DeFi quite a lot. It's very interesting. You have like token rewards for LPing. And when you look at a protocol, I look at how, what's the cost you know, in terms of emissions, in terms of tokens right. to pay versus how much Revenue you're making in terms of LP fees, right? So if that is negative, that means you you know you got to get the product market fit as quick as possible. If it's right. positive, it's great. Like Uniswap doesn't pay any incentives, right? And that's amazing. Right. And you have a lot of other you know DeFi region projects that are overpaying sometimes for incentives without matching liquidity, matching like you know 
LP fees to show up, right? So right. I was pretty adamant on like, let's not jump the gun here. Let's wait for product market fit, only then turn on incentives. And now we have PMF. The way PMF looks like is when you have users banging on your door asking for new features, that's product market fit. Like sometimes these users right. will go themselves. Sometimes they'll actually go to phone companies to verticalize a car, you know, because this right. is the opportunity. That's product market fit. And now we're like, okay, there's a mismatch because like when you have a two-seller marketplace, the big challenge in the early days is mis mismatch in terms of liquidity, right? So you don't have the same amount, same kind of capacity that users want and vice versa, right? Users want, I don't know, NVMe storage, right? There's an NVMe storage where you have all these providers, right? So the incentives now are designed around the data we collect, not oh. pre-data, right? Now we have, you know, a challenge you can solve is provide a mismatch or resource mismatch, for example. Now you can be like, hey, a lot of the users want A100s. Now we can go incentivize A100s specifically to cover cash. Because we know the users want because of the need for it. Because you have the market demand. That's beautiful. So now you can create a very incredible, very clean incentive design without wasting tokens. Or else you're going to make a bunch of regions rich and one your protocol is going to end up being a region protocol, right? Right. You don't want ever. You want a protocol to be used by real users. And you don't want incentives to go towards, quote unquote, investors. Right? Right. Investors should profit based on real usage, but not from mismanaged token treasuries, mismanaged token budgets that are incentivizing people for providing LP. That's not, you know, what are you, what are yeah. you really meant? Like, yeah. Exactly. And it makes complete sense, right? I mean, you have that you're going to have that need in the market. You're going to want people to spin up resources that are in demand and you have the data to say, I need more of this, right? And yeah. now they, and now you're giving people a reason to spin up the resources because of the incentives, but it also gives them a role in the whole ecosystem, right? It makes them part of what you're doing, which, you know, it could be just these displaced providers that are just connecting up and let it run, have some bot that's automating on the, offers or whatever and never pay attention to it but at that point now you're giving people a reason to say wait a minute what else can i do here yeah exactly like yeah so very excited like so we saw we started quite a lot of our incentive models we looked at helium we looked at i mean helium had to pull a an incredible feat to like realign the incentives because the incentive over incentivized in the early days for the right. hotspots to a point there was so much more supply than the demand could meet right so now they're doing very hard like pivot into like web like into 5G, but if you ask me if they would have had incentives now, I mean, again, you know, Monday morning quarterback, right? Like, but, you know, if you ask me, <laughs> it'd be far more optimal to deploy incentives now because now they know the need versus pre, right? They know right. that. Well. Filecoin is doing very interesting incentivization to Filecoin Plus. Again, it's hard to say whether it is product market fit because, you know, but there's definitely incentives that drive their growth. And uh, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of the networks, like in different stages of incentivization, how that like create the kind of outcome they have. So we've been starting quite a lot. And uh, you know, with this model, we're very confident that, you know, it could be better models that come in the future. But I think like given the information that we have, I think this is the way to go. I think, and they'll set a new standard in terms of incentive distribution. Well, look, I mean, the beauty of this space is we're all learning on everyone else's mistakes or successes, primarily mistakes as we go along, right? So you had the opportunity to see that these pre-incentive models eventually have to collapse on themselves. And so that's fantastic that you all thought through it and made a model that's different. I saw this quote somewhere that said, uh, let's make better mistakes tomorrow. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. When you talk to people in the Web2 world about this thing, do you talk about this? Is blockchain part of the conversation or is the conversation, this is a marketplace where you can get the resources you need and have providers competing against each other to give them to you? Not necessarily. I don't like use unnecessary buzzwords when you call that. Sure. Right? Like, like just like when you use Uber, you don't talk with the internet, right? So it's like when I sell, when I approach like an AI user, they don't care about blockchain or decentralization. They care about low cost, high quality resources, right? Right. So I try to keep my messaging as clean and straightforward as possible. You know, depending on who I talk about, I talk to Web2 Dev, it's, it's my, ask me to describe it, say Akash is the spot market for the globe. That's what it right. is, right? So like you go to That's Amazon nice. spot market, Amazon specific, Akash is global specific. I'm like global, right? So, and you immediately get it. Like, okay, a spot market, they understand how it works. They understand the trade-offs between like on-demand and the spot market. They understand the advantages. And I don't have to go into detail explaining how it works. So I try to use right. like least amount of words to ex- describe the value prop in the quickest manner possible. But if I yeah, that's awesome. Stand, you know, permissionless and non-custodial runs on a peer-to-peer model. Yeah, it's just going to go over people's head. Yeah. I you know I find it really interesting, and it would probably I would probably be chomping at the bit this idea that you've really created this infrastructure and that you're basing this on APIs and that you're not providing an interface to a marketplace yet. Do you expect that someday you will, or is this really, you are planning to have the ecosystem, the developers creating applications in the space to be your front end, to be your introduction? No, so we left, I mean, we also, we actually there's an open source project now that's coming from the Overclock team and built Overclock. So Overclock is a company that built Akash Network, right? We have several other companies working on Akash right now. Overclock is also built to Open source UI that, you know, it's open source, actually, it's not GS, but open source. So, but I don't know if you saw my announcement, not my announcement, my tweet yesterday. No. That, that uh, talked to the one, something, some, something in AI. So we're, Overclock Labs is, you know, we're, we want to build the best AI development environment uh, with an intense focus on developer experience. There are a lot okay. of problems in AI, developer experience-wise, that needs to be solved. And we're at a critical juncture right now, and Akash has got the foundational cost model that's great to deliver incredible user experience. So yes, we wow. are building something that is going to deliver the best user experience for AI users. It's not web it's not meant for web users, it's not meant for mainstream users, it's very AI-specific users, right? And uh, we believe AI is, is in, like, if you think about Web3, it's incredible to attract supply because Web3 it has an amazing incentive model, amazing network effects, amazing distribution mechanism to attract supply by terrible and delivering value. I mean, the products are not anywhere close to like usable, right? Right. Like, right. So, you know, the AkashNet AI is going to solve the delivery problem as well. So Interesting. Where the Web3 is supply AI as the demand, I call it. So, wait a minute. You said, wait, you said supply AI as what? Web3 as a supply, AI as a demand. Nice. The AI, the demand is, I don't know if you saw the recent chat GPT numbers. They reached yeah. 1 million users within five days and 100 million users within 45 days. On the growth of demand, you know. It's incredible. But yeah. well, let me ask you a question. Does that mean? Akash goes beyond GPU. Is that what you're getting at here in terms of 
what will be available on the yeah, AI front? You can't just get GPUs and expect people to use it. <laughs> sure. Probably are people that would go raw GPU, guys. You got to make, you got to offer a usable platform. I mean, a lot of times you talk to AI folks, right? they're not operations folks. They're not, right. I mean, they're Python people. You know, yeah, they yeah. don't know how to write shell code. They don't, right. they don't do DevOps. They don't, that's not their thing. Like a lot of them are data scientists. They just need APNs wanting to work with. And a lot of them actually, like now, a lot of JavaScript folks, a lot of front end folks building really cool apps, apps on, on, on AI. So the user experience demand for them is so, so high level in terms of what they need. Yeah, you know, giving them like a Docker container to work with is not going to be great. Get them what they need. Unlike a lot of on the ground, like DevRel work enough to understand the pain points of using a API only product. <laughs> right. But API only launch has been, it's not new. I mean, Amazon launched API only, AWS, right? If you think about it, I was one of the first users of AWS in 2006. And 2007, where we had the storage product, the S3 product, was API only, right? Like, but that attracted developers. And before they had a web UI, it was like a long time ago. Like, they were having command line APF for a while. So, so this takes, I guess this explains this incredible, I don't like to talk price, but just this mountain that the price of AKT climbed over the last 24 hours or the last few days is related to probably that strategic move. That's powerful. That's that's pretty amazing that you guys are. I don't know why people are excited about Akash. That it's cool to see people excited about Akash. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I don't think I dare on anything. I put it. You're the master, the master of the hints. I love it. I Only love thing it. I send my on this one is an emoji. <laughs> Nothing else. Wow. All right. Is is there anything in general terms else? Has there been anything kind of surprising to you that, or interesting or novel that people are developing in terms of the verticals or in the ecosystem? I think more than that, like look at Akash's model. A big change we did was go radically open, radically digitalized in the sense. So far, till like last year, we were our source code was open from the get go, right? Right. As many Texas users has been open from the get go from Akash. But the process to create a source code was not, right? It's, we still had a very traditional model of overclock labs with its own PMs, its own you know, stakeholders, defining the roadmap, defining the spec, you know, eventually we'll get to the source code, source code will be open, but the process was still opaque. Right. We went radically open in the sense we open source the process itself. Because it was wow. for, for in order for Akash to really reach its potential, it needs to have an open, completely open model. Sure. Uh, to a point that overclock employees Everything we do, except for personal issues, are, is open. Like, wow. All our discussions are open, right? Wow. Uh, in fact, I wrote a proposal for Akash economic model, a new one. I didn't share it internally first. I shared externally. Nice. I invited our employees to, to comment externally if they have concerns. So only personal issues are private and you know, HR issues, but everything else is like completely public. And, and that enabled us to tap into incredible resources. So... Right now, there are about 229 active contributors to Akash. Wow. Of which 20 of them belong to Overclock Labs. Wow. So 90% of contributors for Akash Network are outside the company that Akash, that was, that, that created Akash Network. That's awesome. Well, that just tells you the kind of decentralization, the kind of openness and the risk factor for decentralization, which happens to be this foundation or labs delivering or driving a lot of the roadmap is now gone. Like Overclock can disappear today and Akash will still operate. And we also went further, you know, step into 
creating an on-chain funding model. We have something called a public goods pool. We call it PGP. We have a public goods pool now as part of the proposal that is funded by the revenue share and the inflation rewards that we get. So, and it's completely managed on-chain. It doesn't have a PM, it doesn't have like a fund coordinator or whatnot. And, but we establish a framework saying that this is, these are some of the things that you should consider when, before you're accepting funding or not. And so we created a, a self-sovereign system in terms of being able to evolve and also being able to incentivize growth as well. So we're proud of that model. That's very cool. What you've spent, you've worked with a lot of developers over the years, startup founders, people building at your hackathons. What, what things are different for you kind of in the blockchain space and what advice would you give folks that are trying to create innovative and different strategies in this world that you've either learned in the past that still apply or that you've encountered as you've gone through Akai? I have something positive. I have something negative. What do you want to go first? Oh, let's go with, let's go with negative first and with the positive. Okay. Negative. There's an incredible amount of intellectual dishonesty. <laughs> incredible level. To a point, I think it starts from the top and it trickles down to the community. Right? Wow. So the founders are, a lot of them seems legit, but they're, you know, dishonest in terms of messaging. Either they're like hiding their truth or hiding or trying to screw the message to a point where they want to drive the community and influence the community in, in talking way, right? Right. When we all see comments like, Bitcoin solves world hunger, right? Like things of that nature. <laughs> it's just not attractive looking from the outside. Yeah. Even the Akash people, like, you know, it's an outage for Amazon. People, Akash community goes and like, oh, Akash can solve it. I had to jump in and be like, no, it's not going to solve that problem, you know? <laughs> it's not other problems. Right. But that honesty, I think, that dishonesty is giving us as an industry a bad name yep. and hurting people, right? Yeah. Because wrong misinformation gets passed away and the founders are like, oh, I don't know, it's not my fault. It's a community member doing it. And it's just like this deniable denial of like of what's actually happening has to change right yeah so, and th that deniability to the community is horrible. it comes from the messaging that the founders put out there in the first place Correct. absolutely absolutely yeah, i totally agree with that on the yeah and either people yeah. sorry real quick either people get burned after the fact because they believed the bs or people hear it and think that's total bs right which either way it's harmful yeah. To so, everything we're trying to do. Yeah. Either harm now or harm later. Right? Exactly. Okay. Makes sense. Time, right? Yeah. And one thing I like to practice in Akash is radical like openness and radical honesty. So if you look at all our meetings now, like all our product meetings are completely public. Yeah. If you go to our GitHub, if you go to Akash, we love that. GitHub.com slash Akash, Akash network slash community, you'll see different community groups that talk about products. And we have a group called Sid Clients specifically talks about friction points for using a cash. Like wow. very specifically, very clearly, fully on the record. And a cash is great, but a cash has problems, right? And we the first step in order to improve the system is to acknowledge the problem and do so in a fully radically open way so you don't have nothing to hide. Right? That's awesome. It gives us our community a lot of strength in terms of being honest intellectual. There, there's a or a protocol called Teller that's an Oracle protocol on Ethereum. And what I was, I just interviewed the founders and I'm on their YouTube channel. And like the week before they had suddenly decided that they were going to kind of do this 
openness thing for themselves. And there, there was a 45 minute meeting. I wouldn't even call it a meeting where they were discussing their marketing strategies and it was painful. But at the same time, I kind of was like, this is amazing that they're doing this, right? Like, like that they're exposing the fact that they have no idea on this topic, what they want to do, but that they were willing to put it out there. So that's really cool to see you guys are taking it to that level of, of openness. That's it's amazing. important because that leads to my next point of like, the strength of crypto is its openness. The strength right. of crypto is the network effects and the community, right? And the, I call community is a competitive mode, right? That's right. really where you got to understand. And the way you unlock community is through radical openness. Because the more barriers you remove for trust, the higher network effects you get. Yep. Right? You remove barriers of trust by being radically open. Right? Yep. Like if you have very few things to hide, you have very few things to mistrust. <laughs> Right, like, right. Good or bad, good or bad, just be open about it. Exactly. And well, and that's and that disputes. Like, I mean, every, so many people. And this goes back to your negative point. So many people in this space believe that they have to be this hype machine for the price and for the distribution and to get people doing liquidity and everything else. When in fact, ultimately, what it always leads to is the disintegration of the community. Right. And so your point is incredibly valid because. The more brutally honest you are about the bad and the good, the less likely people are going to be to feel disillusioned, lied to, and have less trust. So that's a sorry to interrupt you, but that just no, really exactly. hits. like projects that embrace the openness, embrace the network effects. You really like crypto is incredible coordination mechanism. I haven't seen anything this level in terms of coordination efficiency in like crypto experiences. Like yeah. I've built large scale systems like that. With angel hacks and like large scale social systems, right? Right. He and know the complexity that the coordination brings, right? Especially close source coordination, right? Sure. Well, close source is actually like gives a lot more control, but way harder to manage because a lot there are a lot of secrets. So when yeah. you have fully open, it actually you're gonna learn how to de how to like release the control and like empower people versus uh, trying to keep everything. Else. So it's a different way of thinking how you scale systems. And the ones that embrace the chaos, embrace the lack of control, they embrace the freedom that you get with open systems are going to be successful. And, and I think more people should see from that angle. It's just very refreshing from a crypto standpoint. And these, this is the kind of stuff like, you look at large companies, they don't have this level of openness. They can't. No, they can't do it. They can't, they can't do it. It's just not part of the DNA, right? So yeah. now we have an incredible opportunity to create radically open systems, right? So let's do it. And that's the kind of stuff people get. People envy about it. All of us, we work for large companies. Myself to experience what a closed source system, an open source system looks like. So That's if anything, great. I want to build these open systems and go radically open. Well, I love that you guys are pushing those barriers as well. I say this all the time. The competition in this space is critical and the experimentation is everything. I mean, we're dramatically increasing the pace of change in organizational change. And so that kind of experimentation has a big impact. It's, uh, it's hard to see where that goes wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's really hard to see where radical openness becomes a bad thing. I'm sure there are examples, but for the most part, I think it outweighs the... the in negative. principle, it doesn't go bad. thing. it really comes down to how you organize those communities and like it comes down to communications. A lot of things that could go wrong. Sure. The way you do it, but I mean, there are a lot yeah. of 
really well. So that's great. Last question, and I'll let you go. I've already taken up too much of your time because I was late. So appreciate your patience. A project or person in the space that you admire a great deal or, or that you think has been incredibly important to pushing blockchain or even the world that you came from, Kubernetes and Docker and hackathons, you know, somebody that you just have a great deal of respect for and that you think has done a great job advancing the space. I would say SVF, just kidding. And that's a great deal of respect. Huh? I mean, I respect a lot of folks in the space. I think, you know, you know, like if I had to pick one, I would, I mean, I hate picking names because I don't idolize people, but I do. Yeah, I don't either. But I mean, I'll pick Vitalik to be honest with you. I think yeah, he's good. one of those few people that is very honest intellectually yep. and has a lot of class and, you know, he's fantastic intellectual human being, even though I'm not a Ethereum user, I love Ethereum, what they've done. And I use it. Of course, I use, but I'm not a big fan of like the product per se, but I admire the ecosystem, what Vitalik in personal has done. I'm not a big fan of like idolize, like, yeah, me either. Idols, like, Cosmos doesn't have an idol, right? There's no single person who can say this, this is Cosmos. So we have a very decentralized ecosystem. But yeah, and Anatolian, yeah, Kamenko from Solana, good friend of mine, you know, I respect him very deeply. He's super honest. I think he comes in Vitalik level as well. Nice. Uh, yeah, so a lot of folks have a lot of deep respect for. Do you worry your community will idolize you? My community doesn't idolize. I mean, I've set it up in a way that it, sh- it shouldn't. Well, and look, the more open and honest you are and the more you all push towards the community, the less likely that'll happen. So that makes a ton of sense. But there's another problem. The more open and honest you are, the more influence you get. So Yeah, that's true too. That's true too. Well, it'll be interesting watching you balance that. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the education I got today about what you're building. And I think I think you're solving a number of problems and advancing a, a number of things, not only in this space, but in general in the tech world. So I really appreciate everything you've, you're doing and you've done. And I appreciate your time today. So thank you very much. Right. This was wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. 